This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street. From race to adventure, custom to naked, look no further than Renthal Street for handlebars, clip-ons, chains and sprockets. On today's podcast, we're going to look forward to the Indonesian Grand Prix, but we're going to look forward to it with no Neil Morrison. Neil's not able to join us on the show. Presumably, he's caught in the police interrogation room halfway down to uh, Lambok. But uh, we're joined by a very special guest instead. We've got Martin Rains on the pod. Obviously, we've got David Emmett and Adam Wheeler as usual. But Martin, great to have you on the pod. Uh, many thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to having a chat with you guys, yeah. The godfather of MotoGP stats. So uh, it's going to be interesting to have a little chat with Martin about uh, some of the ins and outs of what his job entailed whenever he was looking after the stats. But uh, David, the stats have been absolutely critical for us. And uh, over the course of the last 10, 15 years, there was a, a massive explosion in the need for more and more stats. Obviously, sites like Moto Matters getting out an awful lot more content over the course of the last few years. It's been more and more important to be able to look for little trends and uh, different things within within the season. Well, yeah, I think also because the racing has got closer, it's actually made it more difficult to make sense of uh, of things to, to actually find patterns. It used to be easier when there was, uh, you know, like when I first started 2008, 2009, 2010, there was, you know, five, six riders you had to go and to, to, to speak to. And uh, it was either going to be a Honda or a Yamaha uh, or maybe a Ducati on the front row. And that was it. Um, uh, or, or on the podium. Uh, so the, the, the statistics were a little bit, um, I don't want to say they're a little bit more clear cut now. Everything, I mean, the fact that you've got six manufacturers who are capable of of certainly a podium, you know, I mean, they five can five have proven they can win, and you have to suspect that Aprilia are very close to being able to win. Um, uh, and you, the margins are so small as well. So many, you know, we're we're now talking about tenths of seconds and not sort of you know tens of seconds. Uh, it, the small difference are small differences are much more significant, and it sort of makes statistics more important. If you like, it gives you a clearer sense of what's happening. Yeah, and uh, obviously, Adam, for for you as well, like between motocross, supercross, MotoGP, World Superbikes, on track, off road covers it all. So it's always important to be able to use some of those stats as well, and just uh, give a lot more lot more insight than any of the pieces on your magazine. That's right, Steve. I mean, we can let Martin explain his own story um, with Dorna, but, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of the information we used to hear, you know, going back 15, 20 years through television broadcasts have come from his information, you know, his um, ideas and research. And, you know, back when I was working with Dorna, it was a, it was a privilege to, you know, get Mark's information through. Um, there wasn't that many spelling mistakes, I have to say. Um, and <laughs> to, <yeah. laughs> so, you know, editing it through was, um, but like David said, one of the trends, and I think Martin will agree, is that over the years, the statistic for close race finishes seemed to come up more and more and more. And they'll be embattered, you know, as, as obviously the, 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 the specifications of the classes changed. I mean, that was one thing that we continue to see, you know, the, the way that the field is bunching together. So it's, it's fascinating stuff. And um, again, like Mark will explain, the, the cause and the reason and inspiration for stats, uh, you know, it makes for some interesting reading sometimes, especially if you're really into the sport. Martin, I'm not sure if you're blushing or if it's just that you're a bit sunburned from the good weather up in Yorkshire, but uh, 
Obviously, uh, you've you've played a really important role over the last 25 years, say, within MotoGP. You were the chief statistician for a long time. And like Adam said, for, for a lot of fans in the UK watching the Eurosport broadcast for many years, you were a big part of that. And uh, I know as a commentator, the Sunday stats packs that like we got it in World Superbikes from Michele Merlino and uh, the one that you used to produce for MotoGP, they're absolutely imperative because a lot of the time TV you know, commentators or analysts don't have the time to really break things down. So to be able to get a sheet with the key topics can make a big difference. And that obviously changes a lot of what they're able to put out on the TV, changes the perception that a lot of fans have when they're watching it as well. It's a really important role. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to around about 1995 when I first got involved. And there was almost nothing, to be honest, in terms of statistics available. Nobody knew how many starts people had, how many wins, how many podiums. It was really thin on the ground. So it made it easy for me, in a way. Uh, not like now, uh, uh, everybody on social media coming up with their own statistics. Um, everybody, you know, is concentrating on their own favourite rider and it, it knows about that. Uh, well, back in the day, that there was there was nothing about it at all. Uh, so it was open for me to come in, and I, I always felt very grateful to Donna, uh, as Adam says, it was it was done for Donna, uh, and then they give it out to all the TV commentators and so on worldwide. I was always grateful to, for Donna to, to for identifying that there was a, a need for the statistics because it really was. It, it, a lot of people didn't accept it at first. There were a lot of people, you know, thinking, "Well, what's this about?" Um, but I was also very grateful for one particular person who pushed it at that time, and that was Dennis Noyes, who, being an American, he was very interested in the uh, in baseball. Um, so it, he helped me very much when I first started. Yeah, because I was going to ask as well. It was one of the one of the things I actually wanted to ask you about. It was Dennis and Nick Harris because obviously they they were they were a big part. Or you were a big part of their team for a long time, and uh, you still work with Nick, and uh, it it gives a lot of a lot of extra insight all the way through. Even now, whenever you've retired from being the the chief stats man, you still have an input with Nick on his blogs. It's always quite interesting. Yeah, it, it was it was Dennis initially who uh, well when I, when I started doing coming up with some statistics, I, I really started because I wanted to learn how to program a database, and so I had all this stuff going back to um, a long time, many years, and sort of just to try and learn how to use a database. I, I sort of put the the results in and see whether anything interesting come out by querying the database, and it just so happened we were coming up to the five hundredth. 500cc Grand Prix that nobody seemed, else seemed to be identifying. And I contacted a few people at Erta, uh, uh, Paul Butler and Mike Trimby and so on, and they put me in contact with Dennis. So it was Dennis who was really the one that got me in initially. And then, of course, in due course, I could become very friendly with Nick. And, uh, yes, I speak to Nick every week, a couple of times a week, some weeks, and um, we've kept in contact and we still do so the, the uh, a few things, as you say, the blog on the MotoGP website, yes. Just about that then, uh, Martin, the 500th Grand Prix, do you remember what it was? It was at uh, Imola in uh, 1996. Yeah, it certainly uh, was. Oh, was it? <laughs> yeah, I'm right then. <laughs> uh, uh, do you remember who won the race? Uh, well, it was 1996. I'm going to go out in the limb and say Mick Doon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I it, it was the race was shortened due to rains, but McDowan did win the race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> You're right. It's. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you sort of mentioned Dennis Norris because Dennis Norris has been, uh, I think, one of the. He's been incredibly important to, to to actually the history of the sport. He's been such an enormous promoter of the sport and uh, and a know of the sport. He was always extraordinarily kind to me uh, whenever I was in the uh, in the paddock. And his his tales also are uh, always fantastic. Um, uh, especially coming, you know, coming over to Spain in the 1970s and uh, and doing that sort of thing. He had a bit of, a, a, quite an interesting life. And one day I do hope he writes his bi- autobiography. So we'll uh, we will have to see. But in the um, uh, at the start, you you said you were putting these uh, results into a database. You were basically just like typing them over from. Uh, where were you getting these results? Uh, first of all, I started off just with the motor course going back to 1976. Um, and then there was also a results book by Maurice Buller. Uh, you probably remember Maurice Buller. Some of you have been about uh, in the paddock. He, he passed away maybe 10, 12 years ago, Maurice. Uh, Maurice Buller was, uh, was a real collector of data. Uh, he was a Swiss guy. And he actually competed in Grand Prix back in 1949, did Maurice. And a lovely guy. And so he produced a book with results in as well. So it was just the basic points finishers to start off with. Of course, since then, um, I've made contacts all over the world and ended up getting data. For, in fact, even this two weeks ago, um, I, I, I got my hands on a load of data from a, a, a journalist who'd been about in the set, started in the 70s. And there's just reams and reams of results, like full official results from... Yugoslavian Grand Prix in 1979 sort of thing, you know, with all the full pack of results, mm. which are like gold dust for me because then you find out who's starting the race and where people have qualified. But I've probably now got something like 99% of all starters in all races that have taken place from 1949. Why did the FAM collect this? You would have thought that the FAM would have collected this sort of right from the start because they were sanctioning the races from from 1949. Well, if you, the FIM have a very nice uh, archive uh, in terms of it's air-conditioned and it's nice in the basement of the FIM. And I did go over there to see what they had uh, when I first, you know, maybe in the late 90s. Um, but the only official thing that the organisers had to send to the FIM was a results sheet of the top six. Ah. And for most races, that is all they've got. They've got a, a results sheet of the top six signed off because they were the point scorers uh, and that is all that's officially available um, so it's it's a bit variable some some organizers would send a full pack of results some would send the absolute minimum so there's the FIM are not great in terms of what they've got going back um, and of course the Donna Donna website is could do with some improvement. <laughs> That's a very diplomatic way of putting it, Mark. But I mean, I guess we we have to remember that you know classifications were done you know by hand and with stopwatch for for a good many years in Grand Prix racing. But um, I mean, we should also explain to the listeners that you know you're not just a, a fan armed with you know like a, a keyboard and you know a keen eye for numbers. I mean, you, you you followed racing all your life. I mean, you tried it yourself. I can remember a particularly enjoyable picture you posted, I think, on Twitter a few years ago with. Um, uh you know I, I wondered how you got the hair inside the crash helmet to be honest i mean it was vintage 70s i mean that was <laughs> that was uh, it's all gone. 
Uh, <laughs> thanks for that. reminding me of that one. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, 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 really, I, I, yeah. I, I started as I say. I went my first race in 1972, so it's been 50 years. Uh, but I started. My brother was a couple of years older than me, and he started buying the motorcycle news. So I was reading the motorcycle news from 12 years old or something like that. So I've been interested and passionate about the sport and done all the club racing stuff, the marshalling, the scrutineering, all that sort of level club racing before uh, I got involved in the Grand Prix. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, for you as well, then, Martin, obviously that's a, it goes back a long time, like Adam says, all the way back to whenever you were racing and like you said, marshalling and uh, scrutineering and everything like that. What was the actual first time you went to a race? The, the first time I went to a race was Alton Park 1972 for the Transatlantic Trophy races. And uh, maybe some of the younger viewer, uh, listeners will, will not remember those, but the, it was really the start of the American riders coming over to Europe. Were, uh, the first year was 1971, and it was really done to promote the, the, the BSA Triumph group, where they got five American riders for BSA Triumphs to come to ride against five of our guys. Um, but then in 1972, it expanded to six, and um, they, they would they would start off Good Friday at Brands Arch, then Easter Sunday they would ride at uh, Malry, and then Easter Monday at Alton Park, and I went to the Easter Monday one in 1972. Um, that and be people like of, Steve Baker, Martin? Or... Oh, that was way before Steve Baker, but uh, Steve Baker did, certainly, uh, at later date, and Kenny Roberts started riding Europe coming to the transatlantic trophy about 1976 but in the first year it was uh, the great American which I had a fantastic I'm privileged that I saw him was Cal Rayborn on a, a nail of an Harley Davidson and he came over here and he'd never seen Brands Hatch and he won the race at Brands Hatch he'd never won at Mal never seen Mallory Park and won there and then came to Alton Park on the Monday and won again and um in fact, I've, I've got the motorcycle news from that, and um, it, it was interesting that they had Cal Rayborn on the front. <laughs> and in the editorial of that motorcycle news, the actual editorial said, are we really as good as we think, the British riders, when this guy comes from America and destroys our guys first time he arrives at the circuit? So I think that was the first inkling that, that perhaps... There was a lot of riders from across the world, like like the Grand Prix were European based, and the British riders were dominant, and so on. And this was the first inkling that perhaps there was a whole lot of riders out there who were maybe better than uh, the riders we thought were the greatest. Yeah, because I remember actually writing about that at one stage, Martin, and uh, Cal was on he was on a Harley that year, and an unsupported Harley because Harley Davidson said we don't want to. We don't want any part of these uh, these match races, but like that uh, 1972 event had it had Tony Rudder, it had uh, Tony Jeffries was there, Phil uh, Phil Reed was there, and then on the American side you had guys like Dickie Mann and Cal Rayburn. It was it it was a great field, and it was at a time whenever you were still able to have those kind of invitational races. And it's interesting. Obviously, we're recording this the week uh, the week after the Daytona 200 was on, and. You know, Daytona now taken over, well, the 200 now being promoted by Wayne Rainey and Moto America means that more and more riders are quite keen to go over there as an invitational race. A lot of European riders keen to race at it now as well. And, 
you know, it'd be, it would be great if we could get back to that point where a lot of these racers were able to have these one-off events, a good test of what, uh, what they were able to do against you know, the best from America, the best from Europe. Can I just uh, interject before Martin um, comments that to the listeners, he held up uh, an immaculate copy of Motorcycle News in black and white. Um, I'm amazed that wasn't used for a pair of boots or something over the over the history, <laughs> Miami. I'm really impressed. That's got to be um, quite a collector's piece now, I'd imagine. Yeah, I, I've got a lot of motorcycle news. In fact, I've got the number one motorcycle news, which is something that uh, is quite collectible. This this was a preview to that event, and um, I, again, I, I was sure this, and the the listeners can't see it, but. It was such a huge event, the match races, and it shows a picture of the of the three Suzukis that raced at Daytona, which was maybe one or two weeks before that, and they they were reckoned to be the fastest motorcycles in the world because they were they were clocked at 170 miles an hour at Daytona, and these were coming over from Daytona to race at Mallory Park, and we all know Mallory Park, you know, which is a <laughs> tiny little circuit, and and they were. They, <laughs> You're not going to make 170 mile an hour around it. <laughs> Absolutely. And they were called the flexi flyers because, you know, they were just, the, the frames were nothing up to, uh, and the tyres were nothing up to what the um, what, what the engines were. And at Daytona, a couple of weeks before, as it happens, that they'd all race there. And they were all the fastest, they were fastest bikes that you could buy a long way, but all broke down and done end. Uh, end up winning on a 350 cc Yamaha, and he was at that match races. And uh, so, it, I don't think no, it's difficult to realise what it was like then. You, I had never seen these people. You never see them on TV. All you do is read about them before you arrive at the races, and they were almost legends because mythical in it almost because all you'd ever done is just read about these people to actually go and see them was a phenomenal experience a different no where where you actually see you see them on youtube even the young guys before they come through you know the racing in red bull rookies and stuff like that so that you see everybody you'd seen everybody you're familiar with everybody before you actually go and see them uh rather different now yeah yeah, I mean, now you get to see um, uh, you get to see a Moto Three rider's dog uh, in a full length, full length TV video, rather than yeah. uh, and and in the nineteen seventies, if you were lucky, you would uh, wait a week and see a little bit of uh, uh, a little bit of, of highlights. But I was talking to Hervé Ponchal about something like this, and I asked him about because we've got obviously we've got twenty one races coming up this year. That's a lot of races, and I was asking about previously because before you would have eight, nine, ten race Grand Prix in a year, uh, and then a whole bunch of invitational races. And I was asking, well, you know, how, how many races were you riding in a, in a year? And he said he reckoned he was doing maybe sort of 17, 18, 19, depending on the year, where it would be the 10 Grand Prix plus uh, a, a bunch of these invitational ones. But there's just no room for any invitational races anymore. And the Daytona 200 is probably the only one still left. Well, to be honest, what what I'd love to see is the 200 is quite interesting because it's a lot of superbike riders jumping onto a 600 trying to make it work. With Josh Hayes come back after a few years out of retirement, still able to put it at the front of the field. I'd love to see it where we ended up with, you know, world superbike riders, BSB riders, you know, Aussie superbike riders, whatever it is. Basically, the non-Grand Prix riders because the GP season's so full. And they came over to do something like the 200. You've got the Suzuka eight hours later in the year as well. Obviously, we've had, you know, the last probably three or four years 
of the of the eight hours we had an explosion and interest in that because we had Grand Prix riders coming back to do it. And I'd love to see it where those kind of events saw more and more happen. Obviously, Stuart Higgs has talked a lot about he'd love to have the transatlantic races back. And I think what would be quite interesting with it now could be that new formula they have for supersport regulations. It's all a little bit different for all those front-running riders. They're able to go into something that theoretically wouldn't give them a big advantage. And they, then you've got the supersport riders able to test themselves against it. But Martin, I wanted to just go back to your pristine copy of uh, Motorcycle News. What what I find most interesting, like the on the very rare occasions that I actually went into the office whenever I was working for MCN, all I did was I'd take down... Uh, take down a binder that had all that year's MCNs in them and I just go through all the sports pages because when you look back over like whenever I was doing the MotoGP job for them, you were looking back at Matt Burt you were looking back at Matt, Matt Oxley Nick Harris and you were looking to see you know how they did the job and what they covered the stories they were looking at and all that and you were able to really get a good sense of everything that happened through the course of a season and it was it was great just to go in sit down read through those old copies and I'm sure you're the same, Martin, that you've clearly got a big collection back at home. But uh, there's nothing like flicking back through those old magazines, those old newspapers, and seeing what was the, the big story on this day 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Yeah, I can lose hours, to be honest, because I start looking for a bit of information. I, I, I suppose my, my collection of motorcycle news starts from number one, which was 1956, I think it was, or something like that. And and goes through to the mid-80s. So I've got more or less the, the full group there. But then going back before that, there were things called the Greenans and Blueans. There was motorcycle and motorcycling. Um, and I've got those going back to the 30s. Um, so the Grand Prix started in 19, 1949, and the editor of, of that was, uh, was Murray Walker's father, um, who had been a professional motorcycle racer before the war. So looking at those going back to 1949, and the reports are so different and much lengthier than they are now. I think now we're like little clips of, of information. Then it described the weather, it set the scene. It, it was really descriptive, much more so than, than the reports now. But I can lose hours getting absorbed in those stuff, yes. Yeah, I remember, um, like you said, Martin, just that sense of depth you get now. Because like, I remember whenever I was doing it, it was, I think, 1,600 words to a spread. When Matt Burt was doing it, it was closer to 2,000. And then you look at it now and it's gone down even further. And it's all about those little snippets. And I think that's one of the big changes that we've seen. And, and you know, obviously the world's changed a lot. You need to put an awful lot more online. People have access to a lot more. You had to be more in-depth because you had to sell the atmosphere you had to sell everything about it and that was where we saw one of those big changes but there was big changes for MotoGP as well this week so when we come back after the break we're going to look at uh, the MotoGP Unlimited series on Amazon Prime and we'll have a quick chat about that Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove with molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen-compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes, from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. 
Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street and Fly Racing. And we're going to move on to talk about the MotoGP Unlimited series. But uh, David, just uh, as we were taking the ad break, you actually wanted to make a quick point just about those invitational races that we talked about from uh, the Transatlantic series and uh, anything else. Uh, yeah, I mean, of course, so much has changed in the intervening period. In fact, the, the, the funny thing is when uh, uh, Martin was talking about going back and look at the, uh, looking through the old papers, I remember getting the 1976, uh, uh, seeing a copy of the 1976 motor course and opening it and seeing one of the first stories was um, uh, about uh, the necessity for cost-cutting in Grand Prix racing and how we need to fix the technical regulations. And really, that story could have print, been printed just about any year between 1976 and about 2000. 18. Um, but the, the, the sport has changed so incredibly much. You can't have these invitational races anymore because, I mean, you know, like if you're paying Mark Marquez 20, 25 million a year, although I think he's sort of, you know, being paid less for because he had a couple of years off, um, you can't stick him on a 600 to, to hoon around Daytona because you simply cannot take the risk. The, 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 the riders are contracted much more strictly to, um, to factories. The contracts are much more, uh, you know, they're much more nailed down. There's so much more money in the sport uh, that it makes it very difficult to get away from those. There's also, you know, you don't you don't own the bikes anymore. You know, it, it, it's not even like even in the 1970s, the factory riders um, uh, or some of the senior riders would actually still be buying bikes and getting parts from the factories. Uh, but they could take, you know, stick the bike in the back of the van and then drive off somewhere and race on them. Which is just unthinkable now. I mean, you know, you're not going to get a uh, Mr. Honda is not going to say um, uh, you can. Uh, no, sure, stick that uh, RC two one three V in the back of the van. Uh, I'll see you. Uh, I'll see you on Monday, and uh, I hope you do well around the Salzburgering or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I think if you were to stick that in the back of the van, it might be see you next Tuesday. But uh, Adam, uh, I think one of the things that that David talked about there was the the money side of things, and obviously. You're a good man to ask about this because we clearly don't pay you enough on the Paddock Pass podcast. You're off moonlighting on a motocross podcast these days as well. But uh, I think it's it's interesting to to look at the the perspective of obviously a Grand Prix perspective means that the season's too long to be able to make those changes. But when you look at it from a motocross perspective, you get a lot of guys that do the outdoor and uh, the Supercross season, and you know there is a bit of mix and match in, in some disciplines. But I think, uh, Steve, you know, David's right. The contracts are pretty much watertight across the board. Um, you know, if you're talking specifically about motocross as well, then you have, um, you know, also big sponsors attracted to certain series. Uh, you know, you might have Monster Energy sponsoring Supercross. Um, you might have Red Bull sponsoring an outdoor series, and that also comes into effect. Um, you know, when it again it comes when it comes to Supercross specifically, you know, there's a new company, SX Global, looking to launch a world championship, um, you know, of Supercross racing, which also enters a very, very busy schedule already. So while you do have flagship events like Red Bull Straight Rhythm or the Monster Energy Cup with its $1 million bonus if the riders can win all three motos, um, there's increasingly less space to get involved there. But I mean, I hope. Coming back, you know, to what David was saying about how Grand Prix racing has changed, and I really want to hear Martin's opinion on this, you know, as we go on in the podcast. But it was quite amusing, um, actually, only yesterday at home because uh, we have the zone at home, and uh, my kids were—they caught a snippet of a tale of Valentino Rossi, it was something a bit of a retrospective on his career. 
And there was a moment when Giacomo Agostini uh, was talking to Rossi on the grid at some race, I don't know, in the noughties. And it flashed up a graphic saying, you know, Agostini, 15-time world champion, or I think that was right. And my kids said, oh, there's no way. That's impossible. He couldn't have won 15 championships. So then I had to go into the, you know, the, the explanation that this guy was racing at a time when he used to win Grand Prix by well over a minute because they're accustomed to seeing MotoGP one by tenths of a second. So for them to try and conceptualize that one person can win that many championships 15 times um you know it's it's a struggle and that's again uh, illustrative of uh, of how you know grand prix racing has changed and racing two two races in the weekend yeah i, I think one thing uh, going to what david said of how it's changed one great example that i can remember is i, I don't really remember a guy called johnny Cotto who went to do, do quite well in cars he arrived in grand prix in 1975 and he was 19 years old and he arrived at uh, paul ricard and it, he, he won the 250 race and then went out and won the 350 race beating agostini He'd never seen paul ricard before you know he, he he was from nowhere this guy and he wasn't a full yamaha factory rider he was supported by the Venomoto people in, uh, in from Venezuela. He was Venezuelan. And then come towards the end of the season, there was a Formula 750 race at Silverstone in 1975 that I went to. And um, he was a big mate of Barashin, was Johnny Cicotto. And um, by then, he started falling out a bit with the Yamaha. He thought that they weren't giving him enough support. And he went out in, it was a two-legged affair. So he went out in the first leg. And the Yamaha gave him some trouble again and uh, broke down. So for the second leg, he tore his Yamaha uh, stuff off his leathers and Barry Sheen lent him a Suzuki. <laughs> so he went out on the second leg on a Suzuki. He never, he never practiced on the Suzuki, but he went out on the Suzuki. And that's how, how lax the, <laughs> the contracts were then. That, he, and it, that year he won the 350 World Championship on a Yamaha. I think, he, I think Fabio Quattararo's ears just pricked up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe Maverick, Maverick, maybe yeah. could have done something like that. But yeah, it, it's changed so much from when it was. Um, and again, going back to the the, the thing about turning up with a, a bike in back of a van, in 1972, Old Park, there was a, a, a an August bank holiday meeting that I went to, and Agostini turned up, and he just turned up with a 350cc um, MV in the back of an Aya van with a couple of blokes. And there was no big, big support or anything like that. They knew he was only going to race in one race, so they didn't need all the, the, the mechanics to support it or anything like that. So he just turned up. He would be paid handsomely to race in one race, and you could go in the paddock, and you, you were rubbing shoulders with Agostini. It was, it was so different to what it is now. Yes. I'm not saying better, uh, but it was different. Just to talk about the change we've seen, obviously, I said before the break, we're going to talk about the Amazon series. And Martin, it's it's always good to have someone like yourself on a show like this because you've kind of taken a step back from being directly involved within the paddock. You still watch all the races, but it's not with the same intent focus that you would have had in the past. I don't, I don't know if you've watched the Amazon series yet, but uh, how, how excited are you to be able to have a look at something a little bit different, a different side of MotoGP compared to you know what you typically see? I think it's, it's quite good, and I'm the same. It's quite nice to be able to take an inside look at it from the outsider perspective, whereas for David, Adam, and Neil, they're still very much immersed within the paddock 24-7. And uh, this show, I think, is, is it's ideally aimed a lot more at me and you, a more casual outside viewer rather than that like 
inside 24-7 view? Uh, I, I'm excited about it, but uh, sometimes a little bit worried about it because I always tried not to get to know the riders intimately, even though I was in the paddock, because sometimes you can be disappointed with when you see things that's going on behind the scene. Um, I can't... So for me, what happens out on circuit on race day is the most important thing. I've not watched any of this Amazon series, and I'm I'm excited to have a look at it, but I wouldn't like to give an opinion on it at the moment because I've not seen any of it, no. What's your overall opinion on, on the health of MotoGP as it is right now compared to, say, 10 years ago? If you look back at the start of the CRT era when you were very much in the sport, it's a very different kettle of fish now. It seems really healthy, and uh, the, the close racing is that's one thing that has improved beyond all measure. As Adam was saying, that Agostini would turn up at the races, and you actually went just to see Agostini racing the MV. You didn't go to see a close race. And it also meant that the Grand Prix weren't as important as you know, where all the best riders are in Grand Prix, and that's the good thing about now is all the best riders from around the world want to race in Grand Prix racing. Um, back in the day, if you were a racer of a 350 or a 500cc machine, you didn't go Grand Prix racing because you knew the best you could do was get second to Agostini. And he would be two minutes in front of you at the end. So there were a lot of good races and the former 750 series was coming about then. So it wasn't necessarily all the best riders in the world together it, on the on the grid together. I think one fascinating thing, one little statistic I did come out with at this uh, for this last race, but there was 23 race winners on the grid starting that race in Qatar. Never before in the history of Grand Prix racing have there been 23 race winners on one grid together. And that's just a phenomenal thing, I think. 23 race winners on the grid together. It's also worth pointing out that the, the way that riders get paid is different as well. I mean, sort of be, uh, certainly prior to 92, um, <clears throat> when Dorna took over and, and probably sometime after that, uh, there's no prize money in MotoGP. So you don't get you don't get a prize money for uh, for winning anything. Basically, you get you might get bonuses from your team, from your factory, from your sponsors and all the rest of it. Um, but the way that racing used to be organized was about prize money. It was about you would get a start money and you'd get prize money. And one of the reasons that Dorna uh, ended up taking uh, taking over, you know, once they took it over from uh, from Bernie Ecclestone's, I think two wheel promotions, I think was the name of his company. Um, uh, but uh, Basically, the each Grand Prix was a separate individual event, and uh, the promoter would be responsible for paying start money and for paying prize money. And uh, sometimes the riders would turn up. Uh, so, if you were injured, um, uh, quite a, if you were in hospital, you wouldn't be able to turn up and ask for your start money because uh, because there'd be no one there. And I've heard tales of, of promoters, uh, you know, riders turning up to promoters' offices and finding the door locked, and they'd already gone off and absconded with the entire takings. So. There was just absolutely no financial guarantees that anything of this would happen. Um, uh, it's a much more stable financial structure, but the uh, like people weren't racing in Grand Prix not only because you know they'd only end up second to Mojo Jacob Agustini, but they could make more money uh, going off and ra- racing invitational races and winning them. It's quite interesting as well, Dave, when you look at it now from the circuit perspective. Obviously, for any major championship, whether it's Formula One, MotoGP, World Superbikes. 
all of the trackside advertising all comes from those championships. It's not like it used to be back whenever individual circuits were organizing things and they were able to crack a deal with a local sponsor to be able to, to put billboards around the place. And a lot of the time, you actually have to close down your track a long way in advance to be able to get everything built in time as well. So a lot of circuits look at it from the perspective of, well, we're missing out on track days, we're missing out on this, we're missing out on that. And that's why some great circuits around the world have opted against being involved in world championships. And like I said, that's across all the different disciplines, whether it's cars, bikes, MotoGP, all the way to touring cars. And it's a big challenge for a lot of places to be able to build things up. But uh, Adam, I wanted to start talking about the MotoGP Unlimited series. You've seen it. And uh, I'm quite keen for your thoughts on it, because obviously when it was released, there was a fair bit of controversy within the English speaking world about the overdubbing of uh, the the foreign languages with English speaking actors. That looks like it's been rectified. I'll be honest, I sat down to watch it. And whenever I saw that they were going to fix this, I said, I don't want it to cloud my view on the series. I'm going to wait until it's all fixed. We're recording this the day after it's been released. So pretty much once we finish here... I'm going to jump onto the TV and, and sit down and binge through the whole season. But uh, what was your thoughts on on the overall overall season? Yeah, two things, Steve. Firstly, I think we see the problem of a global sport and then you have an entertainment system that is very much regionalized. Uh, so if you, you know, you're a US, you're watching in the US or the UK, then you're going to have this bizarre dub version, which I think has clouded a lot of pe- people's opinions and, of course, you know, created a bit of furor on, on social media um, you know, people don't want to see Mark Marquez dubbed in English. Uh, and, and why would they? So that's one thing I think, you know, if you can like yourself, be patient enough to wait for, I think in particular Amazon UK to fix the issue, which, you know, apparently was a, was a problem. Um, and that was what the PR guy sort of told me because I was dealing with him for some, trying to get some quotes on the series actually. Um, you know, then wait, wait until it's, uh, you know, meant to be seen how it was. And, and certainly the preview versions that I saw and it's worth it. It's um it's a good series. I think you know they've a, they've tried to tell stories behind the championship quite reasonably. The first couple of episodes are very much establishing the riders, the teams, the protagonists, the circuits. It's also MotoGP was still in the grip of the pandemic, so you have very bizarre scenes of like Mugello being completely empty. Um, you know the same for kind of Le Mans. Um, you know that's a little bit kind of unerring but it's it's i think it's really well done um and then of course we did have a couple of narratives last year in the championship that make for extra spice such as the uh, the situation around maverick Vinales, um some of the controversy that surrounded fabio quattararo as well and yamaha um you know and of course things like brad binder's fantastic winner red bull ring so i think you know the first drive to survive series for formula one on netflix you know maybe passed with a bit of curiosity uh, and it had uh, a tangible effect, certainly on the US market. And I think this is going to be good for MotoGP. And um, it's a shame it's had a bit of a, a launch where people have kicked off and uh, not been happy with what they've seen. But, you know, I think when that calms down and people can really get into the series, then they're going to see it's it's nothing but an asset. Yeah, I, I do hope that now, once we're through that initial phase, that people do sit down and still watch it because it is great for the sport. Like you mentioned Drive to Survive. That's the the most obvious comparison that's going to be made with it. I actually, like I've sat down and I've tried to watch Drive to Survive each of the seasons and I managed to get about two thirds of the way through it. And I don't like the the narrative that they use on it or the storytelling mode that they use on it where it's not chronological order. I quite like a season review kind of thing. And I think that's one of the things I'm going to enjoy about the MotoGP series because I've got... uh, bit like martin with his uh 
catalogue of MCNs and programs and motor course books and uh, all his history. I've got like walls of videos and DVD season reviews. That was always one of the things I loved in the off season to watch. And uh, I think this type of show is going to be something that I'll be really interested to sit down and watch and just to remember what happened last year. Because it's, it's always interesting when you sit down and you watch these shows, you, you suddenly remember, oh yeah, that was a massive storyline at the time. And then it turns out it wasn't that relevant by the time we got to the end of the season. So it goes out of your mind. But there's a lot of things that whenever you watch back these shows that they refresh your mind about uh, what happened during seasons. And we're lucky in MotoGP. We've got action all the way through a season and uh, great racing. So I'm excited to sit down and watch this. Yeah, but Steve, I mean, I actually disagree because I don't want a reference for the season. Uh, I mean, maybe, again, it's because I've worked in it. Um, you know, I don't need to be reminded of it. But I want to know a little bit more about stuff that I didn't see. Uh, obviously, you had special conditions as well last year where we had limited access to the behind the scenes stuff that as a as a writer involved in the series, you do you know, your partisan. To, I know I'm, I'm talking about a, a minute demographic of people that have an opinion on MotoGP but I think I also speak for a certain generation again like my kids 13 and 15 years old that kind of want to see that special content that they can't see in 30 seconds on Instagram or TikTok they want a little bit more depth um, there was one thing with MotoGP Unlimited I was initially fearful of and that's here's round three here's round four here's round five here's what happened because we already know that and you can look through the various social media channels or the excellent video productions on on MotoGP.com to, to see what happened in the Grand Prix of Catalonia. But, you know, the stuff that really we don't want to see, that's the gold. Um, so, you know, whether it's chronological or not, I mean, I do... One thing I don't like about Drive to Survive is some of the stuff is obviously quite fabricated. I think, you know, Max Verstappen has obviously talked about this. Um, and, you know, uh, for me, there's far too many people with potty mouths in Formula One. I don't think we need to hear quite so much profanity. Uh, it's not strictly necessary. Um, and, you know, I, I just I just want to see some more kind of... <laughs> David's just after muting his, uh, his microphone there for some reason. I'm not sure why. This needs to swear on the podcast, Dave. I mean, come on. Uh, yeah, you know, that, sake, that's Dave, my favorite. doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, though, Adam, like for, for me, the reason that I quite like a chronological order is when I sit down to watch Drive to Survive and it shoots, obviously, their their method for looking through a season is basically to pick a team and use them for one episode and they go through all the big storylines for that team and they can shoot from early in the season to the end of the season and then you go to the next episode and you're back to some of those races you've already seen. I want to have the, the behind-the-scenes aspect, but it doesn't really matter too much to me if we're if we're in that chronological order my problem with it is and and I compare this to especially hitting the apex I didn't like hitting the apex I I thought it was I thought it was very average I liked faster I thought it was really good but I didn't like hitting the apex because they were trying to condense too many seasons into the same film I thought that there was you know too much too much in it that wasn't new you know, it was it was effectively all the stuff I'd already seen from Dorna's productions. Whereas this Amazon series does look like it's huge amounts of behind the scenes stuff that's never been seen before. That's exciting for me to watch. And then to see it, you know, in the order of the championship is quite good to see that progression all the way through. Dave, what was what was your thoughts on it? Uh, well, I shall uh, first of all confess that I've only seen the first episode and about seven minutes of the second episode while I was skipping through to looking at looking for stuff. But um, uh, I mean, the thing is, you have to ask what is the what is the purpose of this um, uh, uh, of this series? What what are 
the maker is trying to achieve, what is Amazon trying to achieve, what is Dawn is trying to achieve. Um, and I think that that is where the biggest mistakes are being made. Um, I love the idea of a behind the scene series. And also, I think uh, in the first episode, for example, there's quite a lot of, of, of focus on the family side of things. So, for example, um, Maverick Vinales and uh, and his wife, and the, they're you know preparing to have a baby, that sort of thing. For diehard racers or diehard race fans, that might not be very interesting, but it turns them into humans. Um, I thought Angel Martin, uh, the father of uh, Jorge Martin, his thoughts on watching his son getting injured. Uh, I, I thought that was really really interesting. You know, that's where you, you see the human cost. Uh, we you, you, you see the human cost of things, and th the point about the, the the series is to try to attract new fans, to try to promote the series beyond its sort of you know uh, natural uh, fan base of uh, of races. The, the point, because to me, it seems almost like Drive to Survive. Um, the point of Drive to Survive is not even to promote the a Formula One Grand Prix. It is to promote the sport of Formula One. Um, to generate more income. So they want more people. They don't even care if people at watch the actual races. They want the audience, you know, they're perfectly happy for people to watch, uh, to be watching the series on TV because that helps promote them. That helps sell it to sponsors and all the rest of it. And that, I think, is where Dorna is falling. Oh, well, I don't know if it's Dorna. That is where um, MotoGP Unlimited is falling down because it's, for a start, it's really hard to find on. You actually have to go searching for it on Amazon. Uh, secondly, the biggest mistakes is it's licensed per territory, and so uh, it's not available in Australia. Um, you know, there's a there's a there's this young Australian rider who you may have heard of called Jack Miller, uh, who's on a factory Ducati. That would be nice if it was if we could go there. It's not available in a lot in large parts of Southeast Asia, in South and Central America, places which are absolutely crucial to the future of the sport. These are the markets which matter. These are the these are the markets which it should really really need to be promoting to. And the fact that it's not there is 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 concerning. And again, the lack of promotion. Within the Amazon app itself is is uh, uh, also problematic. Yeah, I do think Dave, that's a good point because when you're gearing up for Drive to Survive, it's everywhere. You know, you look on Twitter, the the build up to it being released is your timeline's filled with it, and everyone's talking about it. Everyone's excited by it. Obviously, last season in Formula One, the season ended in probably the most controversial season or controversial championship. Uh, climax that that anyone's seen so it it built in nicely to having the drive to survive series but for the MotoGP unlimited series like you said it has been a case of having to try and find it. i think dorn has done a good job of trying to promote it on their channels but it's where you needed more to be done from the actual producer like amazon where you're able to get it from and then the different territories and interest and perspective as well yeah, I think you've got to give it a couple of seasons, um, certainly. But Mark, I, wanted, I wanted your opinion because in this kind of very current trend of, you know, I mean, you can watch MotoGP Unlimited, you know, all eight episodes straight away. I mean, we're very much in a media uh, absorbent culture of right here, right now, give me the details, I want it quick, and then I'll move on to something else. I mean, I would think something like statistics uh you know curious trivia data i mean that's more relevant than ever isn't it i mean it's not just a a supply to tv commentators or anything like that i mean it's almost like twitter and you know these limited character social media platforms i mean it's, it's fantastic to enlighten people in that way 
Yeah, I, I think certainly now there's a much more uh, interest in uh, statistical data. Uh, you know, I put out on Twitter, and when I put stuff out, I get a great deal of interest. And I, I think Twitter or social media is a great platform for it. Uh, I don't know whether anyone in terms of the sports organisers or not use enough of the of the statistics out on social media. Um, but, yeah, it can be used in these sports. But I, I suppose drive to this, uh, this new thing, this, what, what is it called, MotoGP? Unlimited. Unlimited. Uh, I, I, sorry, I've, I've not watched it. I've been I, I, particularly yesterday <laughs> because I saw all the the negative <laughs> reporting. I thought I've got to avoid this until it's sorted. Um, it, what's this audience? I'm not so sure whether its audience is a die. It's not the diehard fan, is it? It's trying to expand the, the interest, and therefore you have the behind the scenes thing like Maverick Vinales and his family and stuff like that. We perhaps, because we've been involved in the sport, know quite a lot of those stories anyway. Um, and by getting people interested in the people in the sport, then we need to draw, that will draw more people in generally to watch the sport. And my hope is that's what it will do. It will get new fans into the sport. Um, and maybe they're not interested in the fact that uh, that, there's 23 well maybe that is an interesting one there's 23 grand prix winners on the grid but some of the more trivial data that i come up with is more for the real fan perhaps than the new fan i don't know whether that's right but that's what it's a it's the enthusiast that really likes the 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 statistical data i think yeah, I think that for me, the big thing is obviously, like you said, David, it's going to be about whether or not this can bring in new fans. I'm going to sit down and watch it with my family, see what they think, because like my dad loves MotoGP. He's always watched racing. My my mom and my sisters don't have much interest in it. I think if Valentino Rossi turned up to the house, mom would think, who's this skinny man that needs a sandwich? <laughs> and uh, I'm quite keen to see what, what she's going to think of watching through the season, because obviously enough, everyone's going to be interested to watch it just because they're able to see a little bit of what we work in. And I think it's going to be interesting to see their reaction to it. Because I know from talking to people that have watched Drive to Survive, it did make a massive difference to them actually wanting to watch a season of Formula One. And I, I hope this has the same effect. Because I think, Martin, the one thing that you're obviously well-placed to be able to comment on this, because you just sit down and watch the races on TV. The coverage that we get on TV, the cameras, everything about the production is absolutely top-notch. There's nothing like sitting down to watch a MotoGP race. And if we get that and the background stuff, I, I, I just don't see how it can't bring in more fans because there's nothing as spectacular as sitting down to watch a MotoGP race. The coverage, sitting at home and watching MotoGP is absolutely fantastic. T towards what it, it, it was, uh, it, it's just phenomenal. I don't think that the, the coverage of the races over the weekend could be improved in any way. I think they are absolutely phenomenal. And we're, you're very lucky now. Uh, and that is uh, why what David was saying, in a way, that at one time, like you didn't even get... TV coverage before 1992 of all the races, or if they were, they were very sketchy. Um, the, it was necessary for somebody like Donna to come along and make it into a professional sport. Almost at that 1992 uh, part where Donna came along, it almost became 
the from a from a pastime from a sport into an entertainment into a professionally organized thing and the greatest thing that they did was improve the safety Be, and that is the one massive massive improvement that has been in the sport it was terrible back in the days where the, the safety because the people who organized the, the races were the people who won the circuits and therefore they didn't want to spend money on the safety aspect of it so i think now is a good time to do a series like this to show uh perhaps the background away from just watching what we'd see every week and if they can come up with something as i say i don't want to comment because i've not seen it I do I do agree with you on that, Martin, because I think it is that thing that's needed for the next step. Yes. Like when I compare whenever I when I arrived in the MotoGP paddock, it was twenty eleven was my first race going as a journalist. And the reason I went to MotoGP was because I'd gone to a Formula One race and I looked around and I saw 50 English-speaking journalists and I was kind of there like, tell you what, it's going to be tough to make a living here. And I went to MotoGP and there was Matt Oxley, Matt Bird, Colin Young, Michael Scott. There was there was only a handful at that stage. And then when you compare it to now, there's more and more journalists coming in. The sport's getting bigger and bigger and there's more and more interest. And I think that this series could be one of those things that can help push it on to the next level as well. And I think that's going to be really interesting. I, I liked what you said there as well about from 92 onwards with Dorna because I've had to go back and record some of the classic races over the last few years. Myself and Nick Harris go in and we we sit down and we go through 10 races in the winter and then we did the same a following year. So we've gone through 20 races and it was looking back at like, you know, Valentino Rossi's early career one year. So we had, you know, three 125 races, three or four 250 races and then they've got all the premier class races for him. But it meant that they can look at it and sell a package that says, okay, let's look at Rossi's first podium, his first win, his first world championship and then his first races in 250 and then all of his 500 MotoGP races. Dorna make a big effort to try and fill out that back catalogue because there's value in people being able to look at 40 minutes from 25 years ago and I think it's one of those things that you're again just come back to your stats packs they're really important to be able to generate the content for that type of video as well and having that database having that historical data makes a massive difference for all those things that play into to complement a series like MotoGP Unlimited as well and I think it's just that thing about trying to find those next steps to make and Adam that's always the the big challenge like when you think back to when you were working for Dorn or whenever it was still I remember it being motograndprix.com and uh, I remember some of the content that you were creating back then you know 20 years ago I actually used to print it off and have a little folder of all the different <laughs> stories that were quite interesting yeah yeah David you're laughing I was that guy and uh, it's it's trying to figure out that next medium to try and push into. And that's where this kind of show is really important. Steve, why is your grammar and punctuation still so bad then? <laughs> uh, I'm just, I've got editors. I've got editors, mate. <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. I mean, uh, that, that, some some good stories there, Steve. But I, I was actually, something that Mark said earlier about, um, you know, not wanting to get too close to some of the riders. I just, you know, that dis sort of passionate view, mine. But I wondered if there was anyone kind of professionally or, or even personally that you know, through sort of your time in racing that you kind of, you felt yourself drawn to? I mean, was it like a, a Barry Sheen or a Valentino Rossi? Was there anybody that you kind of ended up following for one reason or another? Uh, uh, well, uh, going back to this race that I first went to, there was a match race, there was a, a match race series, uh, as I say, but the guy who stuck out for me, who won the 250cc race and the 500cc race, on was called 
Twins on the Yamaha with Barry Sheen. He was white leathers, black helmet, hair out the back, uh, only a couple of years older than I was at the time. And um, yes, I was a big, big Barry Sheen fan, and I became a Barry Sheen fan at that moment. And he was the one, really, that I followed throughout his career very, very closely. Um, so he was the one that I'd, because I was only 17, I suppose, at the time, um, you, you know, you have your heroes. I suppose by the time he finished, I'd matured somewhat. And they, they, were, they were heroes as such, but Barry Sheen was the one that drew it into me. And previous to that, when I'd been reading about it, was Jano Saarinen. He, was, he is my ultimate man, was Jano Saarinen. And um, that's why I go back to the safety aspect of it. The things that happened back in the day were tragic, and uh, uh, particularly what happened with the Arnold So, uh, so yeah, they were the characters that I really followed. But all through the years, I've had others. Like I was a big Loris Caprossi fan. <laughs> uh, I really liked the way Loris went about his business on a motorcycle. Yeah. So was Tetsuya Harada. Yeah, I was going to say you, you mean yeah. the, way, the way he launches himself into his uh, into his uh, teammates, yeah. those sort of things. Yeah, exactly. No, I just, would have uh, been dis- I would have been disappointed if he hadn't done that though. On the last <laughs> that's, that, that's what that's, I feel. Yeah, that's fair enough. No, uh, uh, was, Jano Saarinen is, is the one rider that I wish that I'd um, been able to watch uh, race. I mean, I was sort of nine when he died, so it was, it was really too, sort of too young for me to, to to take much notice of. But like like you say, the, the safety aspect is just. Just unbelievable when you go through the the big red book the big book of statistics from um Werner Hafliger I think his, his name is uh, that we all get given for uh, at the start of the season yeah that's the one um you go back and you look at the races in the 1970s and there's asker through the season there's asterisks all the way through and then you go, and you see sort of killed in a 250 race and killed in the 350 race and killed in this race or all that sort of thing that was just um um it, it's hard to understand just exactly how much the sport has improved in those in in those aspects yeah and obviously enough the sport keeps improving and uh we're going to take another ad break and when we come back we're going to look at what could be the improving fortunes of yamaha in indonesia as well so we'll have a quick preview of this weekend's indonesian grand prix Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars are premium race-spec clip-ons available in nine different options, two different offsets, and six different diameters, all developed in collaboration with top-level race teams. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. David, I'm going to come straight to you on this because I mentioned Yamaha's fortunes because Qatar was a disaster for Fabio Quattararo and for Yamaha. I'm quite interested to see what happens this weekend because we're going to a track where in the pre-season tests and you can listen back to to our, our test review show from a couple of re- weeks ago from Indonesia just to get a bit of a rundown on uh, what happened during that test. But Yamaha were strong in that test. Fabio was strong in that test. Are we going to see different fortunes for the world champion? I have had a look at the betting odds. Fabio's now been pushed out to 10 to 1 for the world championship. I don't think he's going to be ten to one after this weekend's race. Um, no, possibly not. But then, um, I mean, Fabio finished up second fastest overall. Uh, but that was because he spent a lot of time throwing tires at the uh, uh, at setting a fastest lap 
at Mandalika on the final day. Uh, the conditions were strange. The track was filthy when we turned up. It was thrown up stones. They've just resurfaced from turn, I think, from the final corner through to about turn five or six or seven, I think. So basically about half the track. Um, it, the, there's so many things which are wide open. I do think that this is going to be much more of a Honda track than um, uh, the, than Yamaha uh, because the way that the Honda behaved at Qatar was so radically different. It was such uh, such an improved motorcycle. I was watching the the overhead um, uh, shots of, uh, at Qatar, and the, the way that the Hondas got off the line, all four of them were just just amazing. I think they were making up an average something like four or five different four or five places um, just before they got to the first corner. So there's there's some real. Uh, it, it feels like a lot of, a lot has changed, and again. There's the question of Fabio Quartararo, how motivated he's going to be at Mandalik. He was talking about, you know, this is the best that, that Yamaha can give me. And what can I, you know, I've just got to make do with what I've got and that sort of thing. And it's not, it's not very encouraging. I think it's going to be a complete lottery. Uh, really, you know, as it seems Mandalik is in better shape just from some of the evidence of uh, photographs we've seen online from the likes of colleagues like David Goldman. Uh, you know, they've made in, you know, intense improvements. I did a, an interview, a one-to-one -one with Remy Gardner, um, actually just at the end of last week. Uh, he was commenting on how some of the riders are actually apprehensive in, in tackling this Grand Prix, not just for the new challenge or the somewhat unpredictable conditions they'll find in Mandalika, but also for some of the stuff around. I mean, Remy was describing being there for the test and, you know, being surrounded by people filming him while he ate. I mean, I think there's a real intense level of scrutiny just from the how crazy the Indonesian fans are for this Grand Prix. So I think it's going to be a period of acclimatization is going to be something a little bit uh, unusual for the riders to deal with. Again, there's the unpredictable climate. There seems to be quite a bit of rainfall at certain parts in the day, which you, you know you would expect from that region of the world. Um, you know, we have to see this is going to be the first real taster of Mandalika in Indonesia. I wouldn't expect a smooth running event. I think there could be some, you know, some teething problems. I mean, hopefully it's going to establish itself to the point where we can consider Phillip Island and the Australian Grand Prix switching to the front of the calendar rather being towards the rear. Um, Let's not do anything been... crazy like that, Adam. I quite <laughs> like having my superbike grind Sorry, nice and Steve, early. It's going. It's going to be going. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's a lot to discover, but as Dave points out, there are already some little kind of stories forming in MotoGP. You'd think the factory Ducati boys, you know, Pekka Banyai and Jack Miller both have to really kickstart their season after their sort of trials in Qatar. And, you know, there's uh, a few other things boiling under. Yamaha needs to prove themselves. I mean, Honda have to get their new brand new bike ready for another circuit. And, you know, how will the KTM fare? So, you know, it's, uh, I think it's going to be you know, drop a pin on a page. Um, you know, I would like to point out again that we have our Paddock Pass podcast fantasy league. You know, join us if you fancy. It's only been one Grand Prix, so you can still get your points in. Just search for Paddock Pass podcast. Knowles, join us because we'll be giving away some prizes by the end of the season. Uh, I won't mention who's winning at the moment, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's going to be very... It's going to be very difficult to, uh, you know, pick pick a team, I think, for this weekend. And Mark, just, you know, you're, you're waving at us. So, um, you know, and also it's a brand new track as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is a brand new track. I, I just wanted your guys' opinions on Ennio Bastianini winning in, in Qatar because 
even though he did show a lot last year, I, I, I honestly didn't expect him to turn up and smoke everybody in the way he did. What, what are you guys, was it unexpected for you or, or did you think, yeah, this guy is ready to win? I'll be honest, I was devastated because I took him off my fantasy team <laughs> right at the last minute. So I, I, I did not want him to win at this stage. I, I think that uh, the one thing about Bastianini is speaking to riders that raced against him in Moto2 especially, they all said how special he was. They all said that he had incredible talent and it was just a case of needing the, the right opportunity. We didn't get to see it all that much last year. There was obviously those few flashes at Mizano in particular, but uh, now he's got a package underneath him that's that's really settled. And we've always seen it that when you've got that year-old Ducati package, it always finishes the season so strong. You've got all that data. You're able to go to the preseason tests, throw your tires in, work on a known package, and then start the season strong. You look at the amount of times that Pramac have started the season so strong, and then it tails off a little bit. The one thing about Bastianini is he just needs to have a really good first five, six rounds because Adam was mentioning the pressure on the factory Ducati riders. Jack Miller, we've talked about it a lot in the offseason about the pressure that Miller's under. The last thing he needs is an Italian rider winning races on a satellite Ducati because Miller's clearly a talented rider. We've seen him last year win two races. We saw what he can do on a, on a MotoGP bike. But Ducati are going to get into that position where who are they going to put on the bike going forward? And it might be that uh, Miller is that odd man out. And, and I think it would be quite unfortunate because he's shown a lot of what he can do over the last few years, but it's difficult to turn down that Italian rider on an Italian bike that's going well. And then you throw in Jorge Martin into the mix as well, and it gets harder and harder for someone like Miller. The one thing that Ducati have been looking for is consistency, consistency in, in their results. And um, uh, to me, the whole crux of it, because again, Jack Miller is incredibly talented, you know, multiple Grand Prix winner, clearly a very, very talented racer. Um, but then he also is capable of having absolute shockers. You know, Qatar this year wasn't his fault. It was a it was a fault of the team or the bike, the fact that the uh, the, the bike got lost and the, uh, uh, basically the electronic system which they use to track where the bike is, which isn't GPS, by the way. They're using the timing loops in the circuit. Um, that got lost and that sort of ruined his race for him. But there's been other races. I mean, you know, going back to the MotoGP Unlimited series, see the first three races for uh, for Jack and it was ab it, it, they were absolutely disastrous. Um, uh, and yet after that, he went on to win a couple of races. So it's it's... It's very, very up and down. Enea Bastianini, to me, an incredibly talented racer. Really, really talented. Just pure, raw talent. With the right group around him, with the right um, uh, with the right people accompanying him, helping him, pointing him, pointing him in the right way, then I think he's going to be he's going to be a real challenge. And again, the. The, the risk is that you put someone in a uh, in the factory team. If they put him in the factory team hoping that he's going to win the championship, the factory team, as we've seen at the beginning of this season, is um, uh, they've got this bike which still needs a huge amount of work. The Ducatis, unlike the Hondas, which were making up uh, uh, like four places at the start, the Ducatis were all losing between four and six places at the, at the start. So there are serious problems there. Just to answer your question, Mark, I was surprised that Bastinini won the Grand Prix, but I wasn't surprised that the bike won. Uh, you know, if we take Qatar as an episode, then both factory Yamahas won last year. 
But then, uh, you know, the Ducati, the Desmos Adici had been successful the two previous years in La Salle. So, you know, the fact that that 2021 Desmos Adici is, is, is ready to go, ready to win, that should be obvious. But the fact that Bastianini, like Dave mentioned, has a lot of attributes, um, he was the one that was ultimately able to, to guide it to the checkered flag. And I hope now, after a lot of noises from this particular rider about wanting to get into the factory team and to get that factory status, he can realize that he has the setup, he has the people around him, and he has the, the equipment to do a really good job. You know, you don't necessarily have to be wearing that Ducati red to be able to, to go places in MotoGP. Yeah, because I think it's always interesting to look at the likes of Paco Bagnaia and his statements in Qatar. You know, I'm here to win races. I'm being paid to win a championship. I'm not being paid to develop this bike. You know, he doesn't want to have to pick things up and go with them and try and figure things out as he goes along. He needs to be competitive all the way through. And Martin, when you look back at even... You know, one of your heroes, Loris Caparossi, when you look at his career, he was a great satellite rider at different times because you don't have that pressure. When the pressure of being a factory rider is putting a rider's shoulders, it can change an awful lot. You're paid a lot more, but there's a lot more expected of you as well. And I think that's one of the big challenges for any factory rider. Absolutely. Once you step up to that factory team, and you perhaps know that you've got two years in that factory team. And if you don't, either challenge for the title, win multiple Grand Prix, you're out of it. So you mentioned Jack Miller, and he is under pressure straight away. I think Bastianini, though, has got something that must scare the other riders, and he showed it last year, that he is a guy who doesn't have to be in the first three or four on the first lap. He can be down in 10th place on the first lap and still come through. If you remember, was it in Misano last year? He was down in 18th place on the first lap and came through to finish on the podium. Now, that must be really difficult. I, I think the other riders will now be getting quite worried about him because they know if he is with them in that podium fight for the, fa for the last five or six laps, he's going to be very difficult to beat. He has found something either in his riding style, in bike setup, and I have to say, he doesn't seem to be sliding the bike like the others. He seems much more straight up and down sort of rider. And every time you slide the bike, certainly in Qatar, there was a fuel problem as well, using fuel that is wasted and using your tyres. He seems to have, at the moment, have got it right in terms of getting the maximum for race long out of his fuel and his tyres. And I think he could be a real challenger this year. Just a question on, <clears throat> you were talking about sort of like being able to come through from, from behind. Uh, have you looked at the statistics of qualifying position? Is qualifying position more important now than it was previously or, or not? Uh, you know, I, I think it would be very difficult to do that because qualifying in the past, because there was only um, maybe uh, five, six riders who could win a race, fast riders in the race, they would, fit, they would qualify well and then win the race. <laughs> so you always got the good qualifiers that will win the race. No, qualifying is important for another reason, because you don't want to be outside the top four or five uh, on the first lap, because most of the winners come from those people who finish the first lap in the top four or five places. Something like 90% of the races that have been won over the last couple of years end up the first lap in the top five. So it, it's because it's so close now, and it is much more difficult to pass. I think in the past, uh, even though the race is closer now, I'm not sure whether we get more passing. 
in the past, because you have some people with Michelin tyres, some people with uh, Bridgestone tyres, when you had the mix of tyres, you had the mix of bikes, mix of electronics, the bikes were, were better in different parts of the circuits. And therefore, you could get passing because one bike would be stronger than the other. No, I think they've equalised to some extent that most of the passes, it seems to me, as you get on the straight behind a guy, you slipstream him and then do a banzai outbreaking into the next bend. There's not much passing other than in those situations where I think in the past perhaps you used to get more. I find it really interesting, Martin, that you're mentioning there about being inside the top five because just to bring it back to you know a, a stats-based thing as well, like Pedro Acosta, the form that we saw last year, being able to win a world championship as a rookie, come in and uh, be so strong right from the outset. He had a real eye-opening experience in Qatar, and it wasn't anything to do with his speed. He's he's fast on a Moto2 bike. David saw that when he went to the Porto Mao test. But it's it's that difference between racing in Moto3 and in Moto2. Like, Moto3 racing isn't a flat-out blast. We saw that whenever Pedro was able to win from pit lane. It can't be a flat-out blast if a rider can do that. It's all about being in the right place on that last lap. Whereas in the Moto2 class, he suddenly found out that if you give up those places in the early laps, you're never coming back in a class like that. If you give up two seconds at the start of a Moto2 race, it's really difficult to get yourself back in a position to win those races. And I think that's where you know MotoGP is a lot more similar to that as well because the riders are so consistent. Now, they're robotic with their lap times. When you look at the chronological analysis at the end of each race, it's amazing how consistent they are. And if you were to take your stopwatch and try and hit the, hit the same marker, same time, every time you press the button, like that's what those guys are doing into every single corner, every single lap for 45 minutes. This is where we haven't seen that in the past. This is where these riders now, whether it's down to the bikes and all the, the advances that we've seen for electronics, tires, chassis, everything like that. But the challenge now is to be able to hit those markers all the time. And that's where we've seen one of those big changes. And that's why you need to be right at the front, right from the outset. Yeah. Um, going back to Pedro Acosta, because there was lots of talk that he may win on his debut in the uh, um, intermediate class as he stepped up, I had a look of who the last guy was to do that. Now, you, 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 you guys like a bit of trivia. Manuel so, Poggiali is who I'm going to come in with. Who was the last rider to step up to the intermediate class and win on his debut? Ooh. I'm coming in with Manuel Poggiali. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. Marco Melandri? Nope. Uh, Loris Caparossi? No. <laughs> uh, a guy who actually, uh, was surprisingly, didn't, uh, didn't actually win many races after that. Mattia Passini. Oh. oh. Okay. In yeah. 2000, 2008, mm. he, uh, he won on his debut as he stepped up uh, to the class. And then they actually perhaps didn't, really uh, do much a lot after that uh always stayed about a long time yeah well uh, i mean obviously 2008 uh, 2009 i think was the last year or was it 2010 was the last year 10, i think 10. yeah exactly so he basically had two years on 250s before it, the motor two oh, class no, nine, nine you, you might be right nine or ten yeah yeah uh, no but, it, it was 2009 was the last motor two uh, was the last 250, uh, 250 year. yes that's right More, so he had basically two years on a 250 and then the entire did. concept changed and and you know 2010 yeah. was such a uh, uh you know, so completely wide open as everyone was discovering this new class that uh, I think by yeah. that time he got a bit lost. 
Yeah. Yeah. I I I went with Poggiati because I just remember him going yeah. from Jalera onto the Aprilia, and, and it did. was it was a really stunning win. I think Danny yeah. Pedrosa did it the following year as well. Yeah, and uh, then yeah, Pasini. I definitely wouldn't yeah. have remembered yeah. that one. That's a really good yeah. one there, Mart. So so who was the first to win his debut in the MotoGP in the Premier Class? Uh, who was the last guy? The last guy to do it. it uh, well, Biaggi obviously did it. You got it, Steve. Yeah, exactly. That was, the, yeah. 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 Don't give I, us I a knew, chance, blimey. I, I knew Biaggi had done it, but I didn't know if it had been done, because you have to sort of like sit, uh, sit, uh, sit back and think about it. It's not been done it. since then. No, no, no. no, no. no yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, Steve, as you, as you know, you remember that race. Who, who else finished on the podium that day on his Grand Prix debut? Oof. <laughs> that it, that it, I, I couldn't think of that. It was in Japan. It was a Japanese guy. Uh, not not Taddy Okada. Um, nope. Not even Aga. Oh, was it Aga? Oh, nice one. No way. <laughs> yeah. I, I presume uh, you had. Uh, Back in 98, maybe Okada on the podium as well? Uh, I don't know who else was on the podium. Possibly, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I seem to remember look. Okada having but, a good strong start to that year. Uh, Aga finished third that uh, at that race, and uh, I'm not sure he ever finished on the podium again, to be honest. Um, yeah, it was Biagi, Okada, and Aga. Yeah. Mm. Sorry about well, that. Well, I'll tell you what, <laughs> I, I, I think that the only question the related to something like that, obviously going back to season open races at uh, Suzuka is, uh, Adam, do you remember your first Suzuka Grand Prix? I do, Steve. We talked about it on this podcast before. Uh, do you remember your Rossi, flight home? Max Biaggi. I oh, do remember. Wow. Well, rough, well, my flight <laughs> you to don't the, want to remember it, though. <laughs> my flight to the Australian Motocross Grand Prix the following week yeah, it was particularly <laughs> arduous after a few um, beers from the, the dreaded woodshed pub in Suzuka. But anyway, another story for another day. Another story for another day. Martin, it's been great having you on the pod. It's uh, great to see you again. And uh, obviously, you're going to hope to get to get to get back to a Grand Prix paddock during the course of this year, maybe down to the British Grand Prix. Yeah, I will do. I've been to every single one so far, so I'm not going to miss. Perfect. Well, uh, it's great to have you on the pod. David, um, obviously, we're going to be back for paddock notes during the course of this weekend. We've got Friday, Saturday and Sunday where we're going to get everyone up to speed from the Indonesian Grand Prix. Neil's obviously our boots on the ground this week and uh, we're going to get lots of information for all of our patrons. Obviously, if, ever, if anyone wants to sign up for that, go to patreon.com forward slash podcast. We've got three different tiers. We've got a $3 tier if you want to support the podcast and get a, a few snippets of extra content through the season. For $10 a month, you're able to get onto our uh, Paddock Notes tier where you're able to get those Paddock Insights all the way through a Grand Prix weekend. We've also got a new tier as well, the uh, Paddock Pass Podcast Team Members tier where you're able to join us on a Zoom call as well and uh, get a little bit of Paddock Pass Podcast merchandise. So, uh, Check that out on patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast where uh, myself, David, Neil and Adam will be uh, giving everyone that insight over the course of the weekend. It's going to be fun to see what happens in Indonesia this weekend. I went to the World Superbike race there last year. Obviously, the interest level for World Superbikes and MotoGP is through the roof, but I don't think we're ever going to see anything quite like what it's going to be like this weekend for the Indonesian fans. So make sure to check out all that action and we'll be back on next week's pod to see if Neil's recovered enough to be able to join us on the show. (laughs) 
This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Can I make a quick point about why we don't see these um, invitational series when we come back? You, you can, Dave. Yeah, see of back. course you can. We're not gonna. We're not. We're not. We're not gonna tell you not to talk, Dave. <laughs>